Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and sea to the far corners of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, X will talk to you. I have it. Not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Absolutely killed himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazi. For those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men will fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place. A lot of people in the back of the world's gone. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week it's a little bit Dickensian and that's a tale of two Jeffreys. Uh, my guest is Jeffrey from Metatrack. And as you know, I'm Jeff also. So I'm Jeff, he's Jeffrey. Since we're the only ones talking to each other, we probably don't need to use our first names, but that'll be your clue other than our voices. So uh, Jeffrey has a YouTube channel called Metatrek, and as you might infer from the name, it's about Star Trek. More than that, he really does deep dives into the episodes of Star Trek. He he found uh, episodes of Star Trek that showed that the Wrath of Khan was really supposed to be about the Romulans and not the Klingons and and uh, all sorts of inconsistencies. It's almost like a respectful way of doing uh, a little bit of Mystery Science uh, 3000, but more like a pitch meeting um, or the critical drinker where you point out silly things in the in the TV shows or the movies that maybe other people would have missed or let less picky people would have missed, but not me, <laughs> especially those of you who follow me on Facebook and know, see my reviews. Uh, I'm all about that stuff. So without any further ado, Jeffrey, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So listen, tell the folks a little bit about yourself as much as your biography as you like to give and what, what took you to uh, this place where you started doing the Metatrek YouTube. So I've been a lifelong uh, fan of Star Trek. And as long as I can remember, I've been watching the TV show. I think I probably cut my teeth on the uh, animated series that was a Saturday morning show back when I was probably three or four. I remember and, that. Yeah. 
There was Planet of the Apes. There was Star Trek. Yeah, that was that's it's one of those things. It's like one of those Mandela effects. Until you meet someone else who saw it, you're not quite sure it was real. <laughs> and later, Tarzan and uh, some other shows. It turns out that Tarzan Isis Hour. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Star Trek was the earliest of those shows. So if you notice that the sound effects and music sounded alike, it was because it was actually created for for the Star Trek animated series and then reused and. Probably all of their other ones later. <laughs> uh, and just, I fell in love with Star Trek at a young age. I understood it. It uh, really spoke to me, and it just has never gone away. And my, I know I wouldn't be here where I am today if it wasn't for Star Trek. You know, just like the the world we live in, I believe the, that the world wouldn't be as it is today without it as well. And Probably about 15 or 20 years ago, I was really getting into Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. And as I was reading the book and thinking about the stories that he was using to illustrate his ideas, I kept thinking, I bet you you could do a version of this book using modern science fiction and fantasy instead of ancient mythology and uh, fairy tales. And kept pondering that. And then I finally decided, well, what if I tried to write that book myself? And once I started down that process, I quickly realized that Star Trek itself is a fully formed mythology. Absolutely. In fact, of all of the potential franchises that could be a modern mythology, Star Trek seemed to have all of the ingredients required to be a fully functional mythology. So with that in mind, my book quickly became about Star Trek itself as a as a mythology. And the YouTube channel was conceived of as a platform to um, create a, you know, to attract an audience to, uh, so I could get this book published. And, but it quickly took on a life of its own I haven't worked on the book much since I've been doing the channel and I've really been enjoying that a lot. So the book ever does come out. I think it'll, it'll be probably more like a companion to the YouTube channel than the other way around. There's there's a lot of Star Trek fans out there, many generations. Some of the biggest Star Trek fans I know are half my age, Mm -hmm. um, which is crazy. See, I'm I'm of that age where, yes, I remember the cartoon you're, you're speaking of, but where I was just old enough that Leonard Nimoy, to me, was the guy from In Search Of. Then I stumbled upon Star Trek. I'm like, hey, that's the guy from In Search Of. And like my father laughed at me like, no, that, that's Mr. Spock. He's the guy from Star Trek, <laughs> not In Search Of. That's, that's a new thing. And I'm like, huh? How's that work? Now, of course, you know, it's, you know, you see Ed O'Neill on Modern Family. And of course, you know, a new person would say, and they'd stumble upon Married With Children. Go, wait, is that that guy? Yeah, but, you know, to me, yeah. it's funny. Yeah. My actually, my experience is actually just the opposite because I remember watching In Search of when it was first airing, and every week I just couldn't get over how different Leonard Nimoy looked without his Spock ears and without his particular haircut. Right. So I could recognize him as Spock, but he just always looked weird when he was in In Search of. He still favored his father, though. Um, looks wise, or his TV father. Yeah, I mean, speak about two of the formative shows of my youth, the same guy being in both of them. 
you know, yeah, yeah. It was kind of neat that the guy that uh, played Spock in the, the the trilogy of movies they made about a decade ago, um, Zachary Quintos, I think is his name. Yeah, he revived uh, In Search of as well. He did a they did like a season of it, so that was kind of neat that he took on two of uh, Nimoy's landmark roles. Yeah, and I, I do want to get a little bit into the movies to see if you feel the same way about them as the TV show, uh, both from the Joseph Campbell Heroes Journey arc uh, and just generally how you feel. And, you know, if you find major differences between the different TV shows uh, as compared, I mean, yeah, obviously the obvious one is Voyager can be the Odyssey. You know, that that's, that's sort of the, Absolutely. The, the obvious one, but, yep. you know, is Deep Space Nine Camelot-ish? Maybe, you know, a little bit. Um, you know, so anyway, you're the expert in this, so I want to let you do most of the leading with it. So um, why don't you take the best, you know, if you use Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, and by the way, you can, I mean, we've talked about a bunch on this show, but you can certainly put it into your words, uh, what it means to you or how you would define it, because I get a little bit caught up in in the, mythology and trying to attract things to the Indo-European and this and that and the other thing. Mm-hmm. This, this show, I think should, we should stick to, you know, maybe a more modern construct. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, but yeah, in your own words, and then, you know, see where you first sort of caught that connection and, and which show or um, project you applied it to first. Sure. So as far as the hero's journey goes, it's a three, three part uh, journey. There's the, uh, going out into the world from or leaving the familiar world and entering into what Campbell called the special world where you, it, you encounter uh, mysterious forces, supernatural forces, things that you're not familiar with. While you're there, you undergo some kind of a trial. Often you um, you'll be dismembered or, even killed and then resurrected as part of that, uh, that trial. And then you return home with a boon for your people. And that boon is something that, uh, is realized in the, in the trial itself. Usually there, it, but, uh, it's all for me, it's all metaphoric for going inward and meeting with yourself and dredging something out of your own unconscious that perhaps no one else in your generation has realized and bringing that to your people and having a transform transformative effect on the world. Do you, this is a little bit off subject, but a little bit on subject. If the answer is yes, do you, do you watch the last of us? Not yet. Okay. Well then the, the, it's sort of irrelevant. Uh, because I don't want to spoil anything, but at the end, there's a, there's a, you know, the protagonist, I don't want to say hero or not, and they make a choice and it's being held. And it is very much the opposite of sort of the lesson that everybody held two generations ago in Star Trek II, uh, when the Wrath of Khan, where Spock famously says, and you put it in your videos twice, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, of course. A lot, and and I'm wondering if that's not symbolic of sort of 
the change of generations and and if that's not you know part of I'm not sure if we've grown or we've gotten more selfish I don't know but in, I guess in, maybe you'll come back after you've watched it and we'll talk about it again sure I do plan to watch it I just haven't had the chance to yet yeah. so the first season is complete it's completely yeah, done I think there are only nine episodes so it's okay so it's a it's about nine hours they're not all one one of them's much longer but most of them like the finale was like 38 minutes um, is it is it going to be a continuing series or is it just one season? I think it's done really well for HBO, so I can't imagine that they won't unless unless the situation with Discovery Warner Brothers is worse than everyone's letting on, mm. uh, which I don't know what can be worse than we owe fifty billion dollars. So, but it sounds <laughs> they, pretty bad. Yeah, but the, but you know, I, I think a hit series is a hit series, and I, and I think HBO is sort of self funding. Um, so. I mean, they definitely do departmentalize the networks. I say definitely, but 98% they departmentalize the, the networks. They each have their own budget and in, income and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. 2%, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, all right, let's get back to Star Trek then because the, that little interesting uh, tidbit. I probably should have asked you in pre-production, but honestly, it didn't even come to me until uh, until moments ago. All right, so let's start with, um, you know, when you were watching Star Trek, when did it hit you or or what did you immediately think of when you're like, huh, Joseph Campbell said this, this is how I interpret it. Wait a minute. That's Kirk. You know, that that's Spock or or th- this is this is the whole mythos. I mean, obviously going out of your world is is space, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that is a comfort zone for if you're in Starfleet. Maybe it's going to all these other planets or maybe it's a new hero's journey every time. Well, one thing about... Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey that I like to stress is that it is only a part of a mythology. Sure. And there's all kinds of other aspects to it. Uh, it's an important part, but in Star Trek, the it's sort of interesting because the original series started mid hero's journey already. The, there was no, opening episode where it was Kirk being called to join Starfleet or, or even his captaincy that was already in progress. And that was most likely because of the way that TV was done back then. They wanted uh, episodes that could be played in any order. So you couldn't really have a, a definitive beginning episode and they didn't really give finales either. They just, um, every episode was sort of, um, a variant on a theme, really. So the broader arc of the original Star Trek, you really started to see um, some of those pieces that weren't there in the original series fall into place. And I have to say that Mr. Spock is the character that seems to follow the hero's journey most closely. And you have every facet of the hero's journey represented by him, including the death and resurrection. And you have other examples of death and resurrection in Star Trek, including Kirk has a couple of, uh, a couple of times where he dies and comes back. So that is part of the hero's journey, but in a major sense, it was really Spock seems to follow the whole uh, arc of the hero's journey. It's interesting because he's the one who survived into the next series. I mean, they all sort of did, but he's he's the continuous one. It's yes. also interesting because so then by that, Kirk would be sort of the 
warrior that the hero recruits to help him. The you know whether it's the storm god or the god of war or you know or the you know the the big sidekick that he gets to help him. Uh, there you go. Kirk, you know, even though Kirk appears to be the lead, maybe he isn't. That that Spock was the lead. Yeah, I mean his his evolution is very interesting. Though in Star Trek with the chronology thing, every now and then they let it slip when they had a a popular character like Harry Mudd, they would bring him back every so often. But I, I know what you're saying. It was uh, yeah. I forgot. They had Harry Mudd back uh, twice. Once in the second season of the original series called I Mud. And then again in the animated series called Mud's Passion, which was kind of a variant of Mud's women in that he had a type of uh, aphrodisiac that he was trying to uh, peddle. And, but as far as Kirk being the main character, that was the intent from the beginning was that it was the captain of a ship and his adventures with his crew. However, Spock's character became very popular very quickly. And by the second season, they were, they realized that they had to pretty much just pair the two of them up all the time. They were almost always together and that's because they were essentially almost like doppelgangers. Actually, they, there's something to that uh, where they're they're two halves of a whole. And when they were together, things were great. And the the producers realized when they split the two of them up, which they did in a couple of episodes. Uh, the first one, I believe, was uh, Galileo Seven, where Spock. And McCoy and Scotty were marooned on a planet. They had crashed in a shuttlecraft. And Kirk was on the Enterprise. And they realized, they, they felt that that didn't work as well dramatically because the two of them weren't together. But I talked about Kirk going un, undergoing uh, some death and resurrections himself. The first episode of the second season, it's called A Mock Time. Kirk undergoes a death and resurrection at the hands of Spock. And I've always felt that that was sort of a a ritualistic way of him of aligning Kirk with the fact that he wasn't the only main character. So I see death and resurrection in stories as being a a way of resetting a character. Uh, a character has a ma- there's a major shock, a major re- revelation. The character, in order to make that a part of himself, has to kind of go offline and come back online, sort of like a computer. When you update a computer, the update doesn't take hold until you shut the computer down and then restart it. Yeah. So a death and resurrection, I think it's, you could use a, that as a metaphor uh, of a computer restarting. And I've always looked at Spock killing Kirk and Kirk coming back and you'll see too that there was a transformation in Spock at that time, because that's the first time that you really see Spock smile. Right. Of his own accord. I, you know, that's interesting that you brought that up because uh, I mean, a couple of things, you know, in, in the, the Joseph Campbell archetype, there's usually a guide or a magician or something. And Spock's also sort of that, but, so yes. there's bones and yep. you know sometimes there's other aliens. I mean Star Trek because the cast was so large is you have you know different characters sometimes switching roles and being an amalgam. But I also think that in 
bear with me on this one. Uh, back in the older mythologies, lots of them, there's death, resurrection, ascension, which brought the hero to godhood, making it further from man. But, you know, as we get closer, most notably, no, notably Jesus Christ, the whole reason for Jesus being here was to die for our sins and then trans- leave the Holy Ghost us, but bring, but to bring God, even the Old Testament God, who, if, you know, listen, he's a bit of a dick. Um, <laughs> and, you, you know, give the Old Testament God, bring him closer to man, reunite with man, uh, and, and then he ascends, believes the Holy Spirit there. And so you sort of have the resurrection as bringing God closer to man as opposed to uh, taking a man and ascending him to God. It's a, I once, okay, I, I don't know how deep this is, but a, a few years ago, a friend of mine told me the difference between DC and Marvel is that in Marvel, you have men who, who sometimes have to act like gods. And in DC, you have gods who are, who are you know, sometimes trying to act like men. Ah, um, interesting. I like that. I, I liked it too. It hit me like a ton of bricks, I have to tell you. Um, like you, Troy, you know where you are um, <laughs> and who you are. Uh, anyway, so I want to know if you have any, you know, if you have any takes on who was the magician, you know, the damsel in distress wasn't, oh, you know, sometimes you had the nurse, then there was the, the who was sort of in love with Kirk, and then you have Uhura who was sort of in love with Kirk, but then I think the nurse was also sort of in love with Spock, and, you know, they were routinely women of different, you know, colors and arms and eyes and whatever that, that mm-hmm. Kirk, Kirk was with. But, the you know, the magician, sort of the magician or the guide sometimes was very different. Yep, yep. Those are all really great points, and I would say the magician is uh, actually bifurcated in Star Trek, and it's the, the two guys that wear the blue shirts. It's McCoy and Spock. One of them, I would say Spock is more like a sorcerer, magician. He um, and McCoy would be like a like a shaman, and the difference between the two being that one draws energy from down from above, let's say, and the other one pulls it up from below. And McCoy being the shaman, he would be the one that pulls things up from below. He's more of a underworld figure. And they both are guides for Kirk. And people often will relate them to the the two um the the two uh aspects that, that Kirk has to choose between logic and emotion and Kirk being often defined as the, um, as a decider, but I've, in that, that's true. It, there's nothing wrong with that, but I've always felt that identifying Kirk as the decider in that scenario was, um, the wrong category. You were sort of like, if you do a, uh, IQ test or a logic test where you've got to group things together. Decider doesn't group well with logic and emotion. It just, it it doesn't pair up. So I think what Kirk represents actually is intuition. And if you follow the logic of the chain of command, what that tells you is that intuition trumps both logic and emotion. And intuition may be our oldest um, sense or don't want to call it emotion, but, uh, I think it's, um, 
Carl Jung that said that intuition is the human instinct. Yeah. It's our version of instinct. So, and instinct of course would be, would have to be the oldest uh, and most primal sense that, that we had, that creatures have. Well, that's Kirk's origin story. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't really supposed to be there and he, he sort of cheated on the test, but that was, he's the only one who passed it. Was it the Kobayashi Maru? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Which, he was. By the, the way, it was in one of your videos, but it wasn't a test. It was like a, it was like a region or a ship or something uh, in in Romulan space. I, I don't know if the test was named after that, but it was. Okay. It was the name of a ship. Yeah, and yeah, the video I went into how originally that was supposed to be the Romulan uh, neutral zone that that the Kobayashi Maru was was stranded in, and it was originally going to be the Romulans that came to challenge the enterprise. But at some point they made a decision that they wanted to reuse the, you know, to save money. They wanted to reuse the special effects from the first movie and they had a fleet of Klingon ships in the first one. So they went ahead and just changed the Romulans to Klingons. They didn't even change some of the other details to try to cover that up. So, and what I was pointing out was that the Wrath of Khan has quite a bit, like 11, I think it's 11 parallels with the uh, Balance of Terror, the first season episode, uh, to the point where it either consciously or unconsciously, they had just watched all of the original series before they started to work on Star Trek II, the, the new producer, so they could get up to speed with Star Trek because they hadn't really watched it apparently before that. And I have a feeling that it, it left a an unconscious or perhaps conscious impression on them hard to say which I part of it had to have been conscious probably because they used uh, planet names and things that, you know, uh, from the episode. So that yeah, was kind of neat that it's sort of neat to see the, uh, the workings of these stories and see how the different pressures that they have has effects on how the story evolves and changes and becomes what we know it as. Now it's funny that you, that they, they remembered certain things like, the part of some unknown beam, like a rectangular or triangular piece of column that fell on and killed the second in command of both episodes. Yet they didn't remember that, in fact, the Romulans were using Klingon designed ships. So they yeah. didn't have to change anything. But if they didn't, if now let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they did it on purpose and did the world a favor because we got away from Klingons in, you know, deep brown blackface and got the, you know, the high ridged bony, you know, sculled version of the Klingons now, which is a much cooler and much more iconic image, as well as being, you know, you know, uh, more progressive, I suppose. I mean, if you really think the color of a Klingon's face should matter, I mean, that they're an alien. But uh, in any event, it's, uh, you know, I I think that the, you know, the half, uh, the the half Klingon, half human wharf and and the full Klingons like Gowron and whatever, I, I think the imagery of it is, much more, you know, a, a much scarier image and much more uh, memorable. Yeah, much more alien. I do agree. I like the way the Klingons looked after uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Well, actually, they were different there. If you if you look, there's actually almost like three different yeah, there's races or types. Yeah, types of Klingons. Yeah, in the motion picture, they only had a ridge down the, their, the middle of their head, which actually looked a lot like... Uh, the mutants in one of one of Gene Ronberry's unsold pilots. I think it was either Earth Earth Two or 
No, I mean, Gen- I think Genesis 2, there was another one called Planet Earth. If you look at those, you'll see there's almost the exact same makeup. So that was kind of interesting. But the uh, what they call like the turtle head Klingons, those started in Star Trek 3, the, um, the search for Spock. I have to say, though, although, I, like I said, I totally agree with those are cool looking. There's a certain symmetry, I think, in the original series that was lost when they changed the Klingons to make them look less human. And in the original series, you had two hero races. You had the humans and the Vulcans. And then you had two villain races that were sort of like shadow aspects of the humans and the uh, and the Vulcans, the Romulans and the Klingons. And so, like I said, I felt like there was a certain symmetry to the Klingons looking human and the Romulans looking Vulcan that was sort of lost after the original series. True enough. Though they, they did give us a bunch of different characters later on, the Ferengi and the Bajorans mm-hmm. and, and the, the uh, Car... Oh, my God. I keep wanting to say the Kardashians, which is a different kind of... Age. Oops. Yeah. Kardashians. Like, yeah. Kardashians, right? It's the it's the su, not the show. Yeah. Um, and others. The the uh, I, f- I forgot who the Dominion soldiers were, but the you know uh, you know basically they were supposed to be super soldiers, but they were basically like you know stormtroopers from uh, Star Wars, except with stronger. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know if this is fair to do, but of the different Prime series, so we have Star Trek original, Star Trek Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. I know there's been a bunch since there was Discovery. There's Picard, the Lower Decks, and there's been probably Enterprise. Um, and there's, you know, all the movies, including the the more recent ones, which had an or- origin story, which I actually thought the first one was really good. They sort of dropped off from there. Um, but which one of, which series do you equate most to any particular mythologies or stories? Um, if it's possible, do so with a, the entirety of a series or you know, if, if there's like, well, uh, Deep Space Nine was the, you know, seems to me was these four famous stories. I think the uh, original series maps on to the Greek mythology really well. And I also can see some correlations between that and uh, what I would consider to be the Christian mythology uh, with the triumphant from Star Trek, the, the main three characters they map onto the the Trinity real well, I feel. And the next generation, I really feel maps on to Egyptian mythology really well. Oh, elaborate. Well, I'll give you uh, one prime example. The, the crushers. Beverly is, I'd say very much like Isis. She's a goddess of healing and of the underworld as well. If we get into it, uh, I'll, I'll go into how the doctors and the sick bay is Star Trek's representation of the underworld. And she has a son uh, who everyone seems to hate because of how perfect he was and how all-knowing he was. He's very much like Horace with his eye open. And then the third figure in that family would be uh, Jack Crusher, who was dead, who was very much like Osiris. So you've got a dead father, a healing magician, 
uh, wife and a son whose eye is open and he sees, he can see what, what's happening. So uh, are you familiar with the, with the eye of Horus, that concept? Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. He, yeah. he lost his eye battling, what was it, when Set went crazy? Yeah, Set tried to, um, well, what he did, uh, let's see. He killed Osiris. He killed yeah, Osiris. Set killed Osiris, which, if you think about it, if uh, if Picard is truly responsible for Jack's death, wouldn't that sort of make him a set character in in a sense? You know the yeah. call, you know. But then, uh, then but Horus, like uh, Marduk and a few others, said, "I'll do it." But I, then I become your king. I don't. I don't know, don't know that Wesley ever got there. But hey, maybe maybe one day. Maybe yeah. Yep. Who's uh, I suppose uh, there's still. Uh, stories to be told, but uh, yeah, with uh, with Horace, I believe he went into the underworld and gave his eye to his father, with the idea being that um, when a king gets old and decrepit and his vision starts to fail or he becomes willfully blind, it's the younger generation that helps to give him sight. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like his eye turned to jade or something like that. Yeah. You know, once it was dislodged by whatever Set's weapon was. It's hard. There's so many different mythologies to, to give. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of eyes going. Odin with his eye, you know, a little bit. Yeah, you see that a lot. Kirk with his eye. Uh, I did a, an episode uh, or a video about uh, the symbology of Kirk's broken glasses, and that the he um, his uh, his one lens was was cracked at the end of Star Trek Two, and I. Um, I didn't go into the connections with the other mythological gods, but it's definitely, I believe it's the eye, it's the the right eye that's always uh, missing. And, um, or, yeah, I think it's the right one. It was the right one. Yeah. I, watched, I watched it yesterday, so I remember. Okay. <laughs> that's, I forget. Right, and but, it was a representation of Spock dying, and that's sort of why the glasses never broke during any of the, the many, many scenes where they could have broke. They sort of broke on their own. It was sort of like part of, you know, Kirk's heartbreaking in the form of symbolic in his, in his lens. Very much so. Yeah. And uh, also too, I, I didn't bring this up in the video, but I also relate it to the um, Spock's death to the, the death of Christ. And when Christ died, the veil was torn into, which was supposed to be symbolic of, I guess the spirit, the um, God's spirit going out into the world, leaving the tabernacle and, and, but it's still that same idea. Something was broken of its own accord. You know, why did the veil tear? Like, you know, how did the veil tear? It did it of its own accord, just like Kirk's glasses did the moment that Spock died. Yeah. Sometimes things are just preordained. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Out of the void comes chaos and order battling one way or another. And that's, and there's always a, an afterglow or, or a side effect of that. Um, yeah. Right. And that's Very always, maybe. All right, so we have Greek for the original series. We have Egyptian for the next generation. I guess Deep Uh, Space Nine comes next. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about Deep Space Nine particularly. I um, all this stuff is so dense and thick, and there's so much to to consider that Deep Space Nine had never really never really gotten that far. But I love what you said that it would be like a Camelot. I can see that. And and part of what I think is so cool about that is whether or not you 
believe this or subscribe to this uh, kind of a conspiracy theory that uh, Deep Space Nine was actually a ripoff of Babylon 5, which there seems to be plenty of evidence in favor of that, including uh, Swarzynski going to Paramount like the year before they started working on Deep Space Nine and pitching Babylon 5. But in, um, but in Babylon 5, he makes all these connections between Babylon 5 and Camelot. So it would make sense if that follows, even if it doesn't follow, that uh, Deep Space Nine would be a version of Camelot as well. So I think that's pretty neat. Pod doesn't even try to hide it. They had an episode where Michael York thought he was King Arthur, and then somebody said, you don't think he's King Arthur after he disappeared mysteriously? And then the Vorlon ambassador, Kosh, comes by and goes, you're telling me that's not Merlin? Um, (laughs) But there was... A resurrection as well in Babylon. Anyway, we I did a deep dive Babylon Five episode. Uh, so mm. for those of you who are interested, including our guests, please check yeah. it out. And also one on the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. I'm, I'm sort of really proud about both of those shows. Um, check my, I, I love. I like both. Um, I like the reboot of Battlestar Galactica better than the original. I hate to say that because I'm very partial to the original, having watched it as a child when it first aired. And it was, I was very taken by it, by the epicness, the epicness of it and the, the mythology of it and all of that. Oh, sure. I mean, and there's like, I feel like I should rewatch the original also. I mean, you know, I didn't realize at the time that Iblis, I knew it, I just thought it would sound like evil, but I know Iblis was like actually the, the name for uh, like basically, uh, it, it was like the Islamic or Arabic word for. Um, basically, Azazel or yeah, you know, the devil, yeah, the devil, yeah, and uh, and that episode with Count, those, well, there were two with Count Iblis, you know, and you knew once they went into the that star cluster or that that big, basically Death Star thing, all white and all their uniforms turned white, it was supposed to make you think it was angelic in heaven, but you you knew it was a swerve. I mean, so that yeah, was, that was really neat. And then if you, there's a scene where they try to kill Iblis and or Ibli and. Um, they shoot him and he turns for a moment into like demonic. a yeah, demonic figure. And right. Was, exactly. Was pretty neat. Instead of his yeah. uh, genteel old British man looking, that was the guy from the Avengers, not the MCU version, but the old British, like sort of spy police show. Anyway. Yeah. And one, one other thing too, about that. Um, I don't know if he caught it or not, but there's a scene. Well, Count Ibley t- says that he'll deliver their enemy unto them. And, in short order, Baltar is brought to the Galactica. He's brought in front of the Council of the Twelve and Ibli. And when he hears Ibli talk, he says, your, your voice, it sounds familiar. He couldn't place it. Do you remember that? I do. The The actor who played him, Patrick, was it Patrick McNee? Yes, that's him. Yeah. He did the voice for the imperious leader of the Cylons. Right, and the the idea there being that he had something to do with them uh, attacking humanity, like he. Right. He so was it, was kind of, it was really. He was really playing friends. Yeah, and there you go against the middle. Yeah, anything to get more souls or or whatever he was up to. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think I really need to watch the original series if I could put up with uh, the 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 kid and that stupid robot dog. But uh, yeah, that they phase him out. I think I know, halfway through. Yeah, but the damage was done uh, sure. to me. You know, maybe not to the show, um, but yeah, 
Very cool stuff. And uh, hey, maybe you'll start doing videos on, on Battlestar Galactica at some point. I'd like to because I really go into um, astrology. You know, the 12, uh, the 12 colonies are very much the the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Right. And then there's always been a lost 13th sign of the Zodiac, which um, ties into uh, one of the Star Trek episodes in a very interesting way. But The Serpent here, Yeah, yeah. Um, you wonder why that actually, one got kicked out. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, I think it went... I think the idea was that it... it the, the plane of the galaxy changed and it, and it actually went, went out of the, the plane of the Zodiac or something like that. My wife would be, could be, it could explain that much better than I could. But um, anyways, they make earth out to be the lost 13th tribe, the lost 13th colony. So Why that was kind of neat. Yeah. Well, in, in the new Battlestar Galacta, that's sort of what they did too. But then they found out that, the, I don't know, they, they got a little bit of muddle at the end, but for anyone who hasn't watched it, you know, I, I recommend it. It's on HBO Max, but if you don't want to, check out the episode of Garden of Doom, and both with Matt Williams, who's a space journalist, science fiction writer, and and uh, podcaster as well. He works on the astronomy cast with Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. So I'm, I'm propping shows that don't even know I exist. But <laughs> anyway, so, all right, so Deep Space Nine, you sort of like my Camelot analogy. It's probably more yeah. complex than that, maybe even a little bit of Troy thrown in there, and, you know, but definitely... Definitely a city on the hill trying to marshal, you know, opposing forces and unite them against, you know, what, whatever come my way. And then, then of course, it became, uh, you know, uh, you know, an external threat, which is, you know, was was part of Arthur. But Arthur also had the internal threat. But, you know, nothing's exactly mm-hmm. the same. And and there were lots of internal threats. I mean, there were there were spies in Deep Space Nine. And it was, you know, the Bajorans were always, you know, sort of cast out and and. Whatever the whatever the shape shifting the the holy ones the, the guy was head of security Renee Ojibwelish I can't say was from Benson or whatever what were they what were they called what was their race they were the gosh what were they the founders I think yeah they was yeah he and he wasn't even sure that he exactly was one and then they realized he was but then yeah they they were they were Cardassian spies and and. The Klingons were going to have a civil war, and so he's always trying to put things together. So, all right, we'll go with Camelot on that one. I with Voyager, I said the Odyssey. That seems obvious. It seems too uh, obvious. But is there anything else, or is it? Is it? Was it really just the Odyssey? It was the Odyssey, I'd say. Uh, and the original series would be like the Iliad. I think you could probably say the. Um, Next generation, because the next generation was, you know, essentially a remake, a redo of the original series, yeah, in so many ways, more than any of the other uh, series. So, where the Odyssey, of course, is the voyage home, the Iliad was the the voyage going out away from home, and interestingly enough, the uh, first planet that they go to in the original series was called Talos four. And Talos was also the name of the, uh, the iron giant. Yeah. I believe that yeah, it was that they, that uh, Odysseus meets on the, his first, um, the first Island they come to, you know, the first stop. So almost like there was a nod to that 
Yeah, though, for those of you who remember Jason the Argonauts, uh, the Harry Harryhausen uh, graphics, the Talos was on that as well. And but they gave him like an Achilles heel like thing where if you took off the lash, <laughs> all the sand came out of him. And then of course the living robot no longer could bite. But yeah, that's right, the Talos, indeed. Um, now in in going back a little bit to uh, the next generation, I mean. In that you had lots of characters who sort of played the wizard, and and you know, and arguably you could have lots of characters who played Spock. But I always thought that Data and LaForge were sort of between the two of them. They sort of became Spock, uh, and, and to a certain extent Picard also, because Riker was half Kirk as uh, you know as much as Picard was. But there was also was it Q? Was was that the the, the guy who kept coming in and out, and sometimes giving mm-hmm. good advice, sometimes giving bad advice? Yeah, he was their godlike. Uh, like a mentor trick, tr- trickster character. Right. Sometimes, sometimes he was Odin and sometimes he was Loki. Yeah. We're just Odin being a dick. I mean, a lot, a lot of these, a lot of these father gods are, are dickish, especially the older ones. They're, you know, they're, they're sometimes they're just plain disinterested and other times they're, you know, uh, they, they, they want to be venerated and worshiped and sometimes they'll stoop to no levels, you know, to, to get, get their way. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring the two of them up together uh, because of Marvel, we have this idea that Loki is a brother to um, Thor. To Thor, but in the actual original legends or you know mythology, he was Odin's brother. Oh yeah, and yeah. which I find that to be interesting in itself. And I, I've uh, kind of formulated a um, a kind of a, a mythological. Um, pattern to to that whole thing and how he's moving down through the generations and, and kind of uh, maintaining himself where Odin grew old and eventually, you know, dissipated. And here he is. Um, now he's, uh, you know, Thor's brother instead of Odin's brother and still young and, and healthy and the, ever the trickster. And, uh, but, you know, that's something I'll, you know, Something you're working on. Yeah. Something you're toying with. Yeah. All right. So after Voyager, I don't know if you want to count the prequel, which is Enterprise, or you want to go into... See, this is sort of where I lose track of the the new shows, because there were just so many. I, I saw a season of Discovery. I probably saw some Enterprise, but I mean, probably lost me right around, you know, uh, probably right around Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. Actually, originally, I think I only watched the first couple seasons of Deep Space Nine. I told myself at the time, I'll come back in 20 years and watch it. And right on that timeline, uh, my wife and I, we watched it about probably about nine, 10 years ago, which was about 20 years after it came out. Um, so it was kind of coincidental. Uh same thing with Voyager. I watched like the first season or two, I think two seasons and stopped watching that. Um, and then with, uh, with um, enterprise as well. I think I watched like the first season and then stopped watching it again. All of these since then, my wife and I have gone through and watched all of them together. And I really liked enterprise. I felt it was a better show than Voyager. And I probably liked it better than Deep Space Nine as well. Hmm. And, but it's funny because after Voyager, in starting with Enterprise, 
they've only been prequels. I think um, the only the only concurrent one that I can think of. I haven't seen Prodigy. I guess Prodigy might be it might have continued into the future. I, I suppose, but Lower Decks. It's like the the two animated new series seems to continue into the future. Of course, Discovery did jump into the future, but it's interesting that uh, Star Trek sort of stopped progressing forward and went back in time, which was yeah. sort of the opposite of what its original intent was, which was saw, to depict a future. I saw the first season of Discovery and I thought it was okay. There were parts of it I, I really liked, but then I, you know, I don't know. I think it was, I think CBS aired it during COVID because they had no new programming and, mm-hmm. uh, and I never felt the need to, but I wasn't really buying the whole warp thing was based on like giant space tardigrades have being able to, you know, uh, uh, have a connection with like sort of dark matter or space dust throughout the, almost, almost like the, 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 like fungi have uh, communication or like a silly network. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that seemed a little bit silly to me, but you know, I did like, I, yeah, I like Jason Isaacs. Uh, I like Michelle Yeoh. Everyone likes Michelle Yeoh. Oh yeah. I like the, the actors are great. The actors are great. The, show in my opinion not not so much yeah uh i i heard that there was a big drop off and it, i think it's been canceled but, but i've never seen an episode of picard but my understanding is that he's bringing parts of the crew back and that it must be moving forward at least past next generation yeah yeah that one too i guess does progress into the future you're right um discovery <laughs> and picard i've watched the first five episodes of both and couldn't take either one of them anymore. I had to, <laughs> had to stop. And I heard I, that Picard was not good, but I, I people are talking highly about this particular last season. I, I think that the producers know that what they made before was a stinko and wanted to give people some, a good taste. You know, like, you know, let let Patrick Stewart's presumably last Star Trek role, uh, you know, and a lot of these actors, you know, go out on a on a good note. Um, I want to get to the movies though, and uh, you know, if you see any particular different arcs in the, you know, the first, basically the William Shatner versions to the ones where they transition to Picard and then the, the more recent Chris Pine ones. If, if you see any particular ties to mythology in those movies, and if there was any difference in the one sort of Kirk headed versus Picard headed versus, well, new Kirk headed young Chris Pine Kirk headed. Sure. Um, the original six movies, uh, I think there's some really good hero's journey moments for Spock. Again, his death at the end of Star Trek II, his resurrection in Star Trek III. Those were both with the very, <laughs> very mythological. Yeah. yeah. And also, too, interestingly enough, they, you know, they, they did that trilogy, essentially an un, unintended, unplanned trilogy, two, three, and four. And four, of course, was the comedy. And that that actually goes right in line with the idea of the death and resurrection. The re- a resurrection story is a comedy in the Greek sense that they had two, two types of stories. Tragedies, which ended badly, and comedies, which ended, uh, which had a happy, you know, happy ending. So I, when I figured when I realized that too, that's why I figured out like romantic comedies. I you know, whenever I would watch them, I was I'd always think this isn't really that funny. Why do they call them a comedy? And, and it's t- 
telling you in the in the title that it's going to end well, right. that they're going to be together at the end. So at any rate, ending with a comedy was the perfect ending for that trilogy because it was truly a comedy. It was a, a happy ending. So they really, um, either knowingly or, or unknowingly, hit the mark by ending it like that. Um, Star Trek V, I feel, uh, puts a couple, uh, puts at least one piece in the uh, hero's journey arc for for Spock. It shows his birth, um, especially you know if you want to correlate it to the life of Christ, where you have where you essentially have a birth scene, and it was in a cave with uh, with Spock, which is actually more of a mythic type of birth scene. Uh, Mithras was a forerunner to Christ and he was born in a, in a cave and then um, under a star before three wise men, all that. Yeah. It's all pretty um, ubiquitous. Uh, Then let's see. What about Star Trek, the motion picture? I mean, that seems to me like it, it was probably a tragedy in that it ended with, a thud. I mean, it's it's almost like the Odyssey, but it's 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 almost like the Grail quest without finding the Grail. <laughs> yeah, they uh, let's see that it has a special place, I think, in the canon. Um, it's sort of a standalone movie in a standalone time period. It was the only live action Star Trek from the seventies that we got too. So that was. Kind of neat as far as the storyline goes. So it um, it is a a story of uh, of a of a birth, really um, uh, the birth of a new type of being, part man, part alien, part machine, and it almost was like, in a sense, there was almost an alchemical story ha- happening here with these different influences coming in and in, in the, uh, in a sequence of different events that sort of all lead to the culmination of this um, new, almost God-like, like, well, I guess you could say uh, that Decker reached apotheosis when he merged with V'ger. And. Oh, it was the same Decker from uh, the, the original series that was supposed to be uh, Pike's number one. So this Decker was actually was supposed to be Matt Decker from the original series, his son. There was an uh, original series episode called The Doomsday Machine, where there's a Commodore named Matt Decker who sacrifices himself at the end, just like his son does. But they, they were father and son. Now, the Decker in, um, in, uh, in the movie was actually a forerunner to Riker in the next generation. I did a video about this. My, my second video I did uh, talked about how the start Star Trek, the motion picture was actually the end result of a, of a canceled television series from the late seventies. And they had uh, Decker, Ilea and another character that didn't make it into the motion picture. His name was Zahn. Those three characters were the basis for, Riker, Troy, and Data. And Decker and Riker, their names are pretty similar. It's a 
and you know it was Willard Deckard and William Riker. So they they kept the name similar. Now Troy and Ilea, their their names don't sound anything alike. However, if you look up what Ilea means, it actually means Troy. Iliam, right? So kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ilea, um, Iliad. Uh, Ilea is just uh, Iliad without the D. Yeah, and I I talk about that in the video as well. So I. It also is a part of the groin. It's a bone in the groin, which is kind of interesting. She was supposed to be a very sexual character from a, a sexual race. Well, also, wasn't she Diana Troy and Diana is Artemis? Yes. Yes. A goddess of many properties. One of the, and wasn't Artemis Achilles' mom as well? I think so. I'd have to. I'd have to look into it to be sure, but yeah, I don't think it ties into Star Trek necessarily, but it's just, uh, but yeah, she was the the goddess of the hunt. I think of the moon and you know, the moon and female is often associated. And Troy was an empath. Yeah. So just like, um, wasn't very good at it. (laughs) No, no. She pretty much told her, told Kurt or Picard exactly what, you know, it was pretty obvious and everyone could tell anyway, he didn't really need to be an empath to, um, sense what she was sensing, unfortunately. But, you know, Ilea was a, an empath as well, I think, or was, had abilities like that. She was, and they said too, if this, if that had gone into series, that that the way that they were working on the scripts, that she was transitioning into somewhat of a counselor like character as well. Right. Well, Troy, unfortunately, I think the empathy worked against her and that, that got her all worked up a lot. So, uh, <laughs> distracted. Um, so anyway, enough about Troy. So, uh, all right. So, w- what do you think about the 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 new arc? Uh, with you know, I I actually liked the reboot. I thought the casting was wonderful. I thought Chris Pine was good. The ending was there, but uh, you know, it, it was mostly world building, reminding us of the world, bringing us the characters, the crew, the camaraderie. I'm not sure how I felt about Spock meeting Spock, but aside from that, what what did you think of it? And did you in do you think that it represents a different mythology, a different arc than than the original Star Trek because it did take us to uh, Jim Kirk's origin back in Iowa? Oh boy, uh, I feel like we're we have um, some opposing views on that movie. Um, that's okay. We're I didn't. Uh, I said leaving the theater. Uh, is it okay if I if I swear? Sure, I'll just, I'll just put the explicit, uh, explicit tab, uh, tab on it. Okay. <laughs> leaving the theater, I said I hated every fucking frame of that movie. <laughs> and my my friend that was with me, he got a good chuckle because he said he took a look at me and he said, "You look like somebody just shot your dog." <laughs> <laughs> which I always thought was a funny, funny thing. Um, no, I didn't, didn't like it at all. Um, Not at all. Huh? And no, I, again, hated every frame of that. I was, I, I was seething the whole way through. The third movie I could see the third movie was abysmal. The second movie was just like a summer movie. I, I remember seeing it in Iron Man three, like a, a week apart and feeling I saw the same movie twice. Yeah. It's funny. Cause you know, the, so I saw the first one only once in a the theater refused to watch it again. Uh, by the time the second one had come around, 
I had changed my perspective a little bit and I started to sort of look like, look at it as a gold key comic made into a movie. So the gold key comics of Star Trek were very loosely based on the TV show. They were, there was a lot of inconsistencies. They would get the, even the colors of their shirts wrong on the covers and they weren't very Star Trek like they, they had the facade of Star Trek, but that was about it. And I felt that movie when I, it was time for that movie to come out, I had, I had started to look at these new movies as something like that. And so we actually went to see that one twice. It was the only one I saw twice. We did see, went to see the third one. Couldn't wait for that one to be over. And I think we tried to watch it again on cable and watched, I don't know, a half hour of it and just said, we, we just couldn't do it. We just, we ended up just turning it off. I've never rewatched that movie altogether. But I have to say, having, after getting the emotional, you know, uh, baggage out of the way and looking at the, at Star Trek 2009 from a more, um, uh, logical or, or let's say mythological perspective, I did see something in it that I found to be interesting. There's actually a couple of things in there that I thought were pretty interesting. One, it was, despite it being, in my opinion, a bad movie and they could have done, they could have had a much better story. It actually did progress Spock's mythological journey to its logical conclusion. Again, based on if the, the life of the story of Christ. If you think about what happened with Christ after his death and resurrection, he had a, bo- a bodily ascension into a higher, you know, obviously a higher realm of existence. You know, he bodily ascended into heaven, right? So even though there was a considerable amount of time between Spock's death and resurrection and his bodily ascent, that's essentially what happens in this movie. Yeah. He leaves the, the known universe and goes into another uh, a universe really of his own creation. If you think about it, however, there was a devil figure or an adversarial figure that also impacted and influenced the creation of this new timeline, this new universe that was um, uh, Nero, who of course, biblically speaking is most scholars think that he was the, he was the, the beast in revelations, you know, the six, six, six is the, the number of a man. And it actually turns out to be, it equates to Nero's name. Oh, okay. Numerologic, numerologically. So you have that, um, this ascension into another realm. So I thought it was kind of cool once I, you know, really looked at it. The other thing I found to be interesting is starting with, Enterprise, they really made the Vulcans into this is a part, this is gonna be part of the hero's journey. Uh, so it's kind of kind of a neat, I think, connection here. They made the uh, the Vulcans into a a mentor race for humanity, starting with uh, Enterprise. They really leaned heavy on that. And as you were saying earlier, how Spock was sort of a guide for Kirk. That's very true. He was supposed to be his sort of like his indigenous guide. Uh, out in space, sort of like Tonto to the Lone, Lone Ranger kind of idea. He was the um, his native 
his native guide. And so in a way, as a guide, that's sort of a mentor figure. But here's something interesting, I, I think. Once they turned the Vulcan race into a mentor race for humanity, in three different films, Vulcan is destroyed, and one of them being Star Trek 2009. Now, the how that relates to the hero's journey is that at some point, the mentor has to die mm-hmm. for the hero to progress. And so, again, in um, Enterprise, the Vulcans become the mentors to humanity. And then you have actually two fan films, uh, Star Trek uh, New Voyages, which became, they changed their name to Star Trek Phase 2. They had an episode where the planet, just the, the planet killers um, from Doomsday Machine, the same episode that had Matt Decker in it, uh, Will Deckard's uh, father. Um, they, they, there's an alternate timeline where there's a bunch of these in the in the galaxy, and one of them destroys Vulcan. So that's Vulcan's destroyed there. Of course, they bring they get it back. There's another fan film called Of Gods and Men, where it's the mirror universe uh, enterprise or a ship from the mirror universe comes with some ultimate weapon and they destroy Vulcan. And then in Star Trek 2009, of course, Nero destroys Vulcan. Right. So that follows the, the pattern from the hero's journey of the mentor dying. Well, it's also, if you have the, the guide race, it could be Atlantis and that goes back to Greek. Mm-hmm. Of sorts. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's fun. And then, yeah. Apparently, even perhaps even earlier, right? That's um, we get that from uh, Plato. Um, but apparently, there was some. There might there may be an Egyptian reference to it as well. Well, allegedly, all, all that comes from Plato. It says that his ancestor, his ancestor Solon story, but his ancestor Solon was from six hundred years ago, and he got it from Egyptian priests or something talking yeah. about. It. So, yeah. I mean. I don't know if there's any independent Egyptian literature on it. Actually, I'm pretty sure there isn't because uh, Plato's is the earliest, and then there's two, like Timaeus wrote about it, and then someone else. And It's funny because in, in all of the stories, Atlantis lost one, if not two, wars. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be so superior, but even in, in the ancient Greek, they had lost a war with a power to the east you know some people say it was mm. persian some you know some people say it was hyperborea or the you know the vedic india but a tartaria it doesn't matter um <laughs> i mean it might have if it really happened but it doesn't matter for our mm-hmm. purposes and then right. the second war they lost was to the athenians you know which you know makes it seem less like you know gods losing to men and more like the you know the british empire losing to the 13 colonies <laughs> yeah yeah it sounds like the underdog um Got the upper hand. Yeah, yeah. Some, or the or the student usurped. It's it's you know decaying masters. Whether it's because of decadence or just old age. You know, decay is decay. However, it come, yeah. you come by it. Yeah. So it's 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 the you know in Joseph Campbell's version, it doesn't matter what causes the decay necessarily. The the decay is the archetype. How you get there is just the story. Um, there you go. Yeah. So okay, like so that. I think I think we hit some new things. Maybe maybe hopefully some sparks for some videos for you in the future, which will be cool. Um, are there Absolutely. any other shows that you feel or, or pro- properties that you, you feel even nearly as near and dear to Star Trek um, out there? Uh, 
Well, I am a big Star Wars fan as well. Although allowed to be both? Yeah, I think so. No one's uh, <laughs> I don't see why not. I didn't get There's that a, memo. <laughs> um, although I have to say that um, Star Wars was more of a a child and teenage obsession. It didn't. It hasn't really held with me as much as Star Trek. Um, maybe for obvious reasons. I don't know. Uh, I think it was more. We can say a, it. the 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 prequels. And the sequels were all worse than everything except for the second half of uh, Return of the Jedi, except for Rogue One, which was pretty good. Yeah, Rogue One, I like that a lot. And I like The Mandalorian a lot, too. Oh, yeah, I think. some of the TV. Yeah, Mandalorian yeah. is a lot of fun. Um, Boba Fett, eh, not so much. And there's Andor. Andor, I like that a lot, too. We tried to watch that. We watched the, the pilot and decided not to proceed with it. It just felt, I don't know. It's good. It's a it's a it's a spot. I heard. Yeah, I hear. I heard it's actually might be the best of the bunch, maybe from what I've heard. But it could be. Yeah. It. I don't know. The Mandalorian to me just has that. It has. It has the wonder. It's got the samurai or gunslinger aspect of it. But, but, but it's also got your. It's got your Odyssey kind of thing where he's got a quest, but he keeps getting sidetracked. You know, either by need or encumbrance, or he needs another piece. It's. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like a video game. You could you can't get to the end because you have to, you know, you, you need some part here before you get to the part. You need to kill this monster, and before you kill this monster, you need to go to the home world and be forgiven. And you know, and mm-hmm. you know, there's always a side venture. So the Mandalorian yeah. is is uh, to me has has it all, including good characters and including Katie Sackoff, who I cast to be Captain Marvel, but she was Starbuck in in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Um, nobody listens to me, and yeah. she wasn't cast as Starbuck, but she's. Um, I forget her character's name, but she she's the self proclaimed queen by birthright of Mandalore, but you know there's nothing there. Um, so she did the you know uh, while she she sort of despises the Mandalorian myths and fairy tales and and their ways. You know she sort of has the skills, but uh, even though she eschewed it, she sort of uh, it sort of came to nothing. So you know right now it's only episode three in in season three, and you know now. It looks like she's turned turned face and is now uh, helping our our hero, but um, okay. I'm, I'm not sure just yet. I haven't checked the new season out. We were sort of waiting, I think, for it to kind of wrap up so we could watch it at our leisure instead of having to uh, to wait with bated breath for the next episode. But as far as I'm concerned, my opinion is that the Mandalorian is the best Star Wars since the original Star Wars movie. I think I like it even better than uh, The Empire Strikes Back. I've, I always really liked The Empire Strikes Back. I always felt it was like the best until the last time we watched it. We, well, my wife and I rewatched it a few years ago, and gosh, I just felt like, I don't know. It didn't uh, didn't hold up, at least at that time. If I rewatch it again, I'd have a different opinion now. But you want the after problem? rewatching it, hmm? Luke. Luke's the problem. <laughs> And the original, would you, what, what do you think? Uh, original Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back? Which one did you like better? I mean, the original Star Wars is sort of like your perfect story. Um, yep. and, and while it's not particularly complex, that's fine. And, and it was 1977. I was 10. So, you know, or, mm. or maybe, maybe younger. Yeah, probably younger. More than 68. So I was definitely younger, under 10. Uh, and it was, it was terrific. Um, and 
you know, Empire was a tragedy. It, it, it ended sadly. So that was, that's different. You didn't have movies that ended with a cliffhanger like that. That so that was completely new so to yeah. me anyway. So I'm not, you know, I think Empire was probably a better movie, but watching it over again and watching it as old, it's like Luke is completely unlikable. And, and you know, right. and um, he's almost like uh, the Adam Sad- Sandler character in Uncut Gems. Like by the end of that, I'm like, just please blow his head off already. And they blew his head off. I'm like, <laughs> Thank you. And that's not the, the emotion I'm supposed to get. I'm like, you know, yeah, it's what they, it wasn't what they were going for. <laughs> I'm like, You're lucky Dark just cut off your hand. I mean, and then later on, it's supposed to be because Dark lost his hand, but then of course they ruined that in, in the in the prequels by having Dark lose all of his limbs, you know, which which was yeah. a really good scene in in all of those movies. Um, but still, I mean, it, it changed the whole symbology of him having his hand cut off. I mean, the whole thing yeah. was the uh, you know the sins of the father visited on the on the son. Um, so anyway, yeah, I feel like um, George Lucas should have rewatched his uh, original movies before he wrote his prequels because it seems like everything they had established as the history of star Wars in the, in the original movies, he completely changed in the prequels. Yes. Which is weird. By the way, I hated Obi-Wan. Hated it. (laughs) Every part of it. I mean, from the fact that Leia had never met Obi-Wan before now, what she forgot this gigantic epic adventure of her childhood. I mean, and then, the, and the fact he's trying to be undercover, and he's talking like the most patrician nobleman of all, whereas you know, on like minor plants, he's like, "Ew, stormtrooper, please ignore us and forgive." And then he's trying to fit in. It's like, it, it, it's like the, the king of England trying trying to hang out in in like port bars or something. It's like, come mm-hmm. on, it, yeah, like try. You're an actor. Try. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I didn't see Obi Wan. I haven't watched. Um... No. I'm telling you, yeah, and, and the only thing that comes out of Obi-Wan is that the Darth Vader looks like a complete dummy as well. It's like oh, a million yeah. times he could kill everyone, and he doesn't for reasons and sometimes not reasons. I mean, it, for plot. I, well, or lack thereof, just because <laughs> the characters need to live to, to advance it. It's just, I mean, they made one of the most iconic villains, if not the most iconic villain in cinema history, look like a dummy. And that's too bad. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't want that at all. And, that, and that's, you know, before he had some torn sympathy for his son and, you know, there was no illusion that he knew that Leia was his daughter at the time, though you think that he'd be able to sense that, but I, you know, there, there was, I don't recall there being any allusion to that. Not that I would watch it. Mm. Second time. Anyway, I hated Obi-Wan. There are people who like it, but that's not a, that, that's, you haven't seen it and that's not mm-hmm. the show, but I have to say, Definitely, you have proved yourself as meta Trek. This is definitely meta Trek. It seems like we could we can apply meta to a lot of things, but I think Trek is just such a rich tapestry of so many different shows, so many different years, so many different movies, other properties, as you mentioned, the cartoon, the comic books, fan fiction, mm-hmm. uh, and some of which has been al- allowed to be sort of semi-canon, almost like the Dark Tower, um, which is... Yeah, can- canon's an interesting thing. Yeah. If you don't mind me no, butting in on that. You're the guest. And I uh, want to do a do a video on canon someday. And because for there to be a canon, there has to be an apocrypha. Um, there has mm. to be, you know, there's certain things that are allowed into the canon, and then the rest of it is considered apocryphal. And what you find in the apocrypha, any apocrypha, is often the the 
you'll find bits of the mythology that's lacking or missing in the in the canon. So the apocrypha, the apocrypha can be just as important as the canon. And a lot of people um, dismiss things that are apocryphal, uh, but I feel that there's a lot of importance there. Uh, again, like I, was, I mentioned before about the uh, the planet Vulcan being destroyed, you know, they became the mentors and then they had to die. And that was first brought up in two apocryphal films. And maybe they, maybe Abram had even seen those and got the idea from them to put it in his movie, perhaps. Um, but yeah, they, there, there's a lot of uh, important things to be found. Like if you read the, uh, the Christian apocrypha, you'll find some real important mythological aspects to the, the life of Christ that is missing from the gospels. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's, and there's also the, 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 the book, the three books of Enoch and Jubilees and, you know, and the, and the, the, the gospels from several of the apostles and all, including Mary. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. I did a show on the Apocrypha with a, oh, cool. with a former okay. Mormon minister. So that was, that was really cool as well. And, uh, uh, you say you you are a foreman? Oh or no, a foreman? no, no, my guest was. No. And, oh, your guest? Okay, yeah, okay. He's actually been on five times. I'm hopefully coming on six to do a proper show on Atlantis. Um, Interesting, but yeah, 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 yeah. He did the Norse mythology show as well. Chris Ams, hi, Chris. Um, so, uh, and even though this show probably won't come out until much later, congratulations on your your big test. So we're recording this March. Was it the 18th or the 16th? It's, it's the 16th. Anyway, 16th. Yeah, the show probably won't come out for you know a, uh, several weeks, if not several months. I'm I'm sort of binging on recordings while I'm solo. The audience knows that La Sicaria is is down doing the Sicaria things, and so uh, gotta keep myself busy, right? I gotta keep myself off the off the streets <laughs> and anything from grocery shopping. You know, I'll order Chinese for like a family of four just for me, and like you know, just eat it like three meals a day for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm 54 and I'm still basically a 20 year old. So there you go. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I can't thank you enough. So interesting. Um, please tell the folks where they can find your stuff, how they can support you, and, and how, where they what they should subscribe to, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Well, my main channel is uh, my YouTube channel. So that's at youtube.com uh, slash Metatrek. And I have an Instagram. Uh, page as well. So that's at Metatrek videos and you can support me on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Metatrek. If you join me there, you'll get exclusive deeper content. So I take my content to a deeper level on Patreon than I do on YouTube. I kind of feel it's like more like an inner sanctum and for the, for the initiated. And when I reach, uh, my goal of uh, getting so you know so much per month, I'm gonna I'll be able to start producing more content. So if you are interested and want to help support me, that would be awesome. Do you and, have three uh, levels like the Masons? There are. Yes, there's a three dollar, a nine dollar, and an eighteen dollar excellent level. Yep, very very, very Kabbalist there as well. So. <laughs> Prime yes. numbers, all prime numbers. Oh, yeah, right. intentionally. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Those are t- terrific numbers. All right, well, everyone, you heard them. Was it? Was there anything that you wanted to say that, that, that we didn't get to that I didn't give you a chance to? 
Oh, there's about a dozen things. So um, <laughs> we'll have to, hopefully maybe we'll do this again sometime. Yeah. But yeah, there's uh, all all sorts of things that we never actually got a chance to get into. All right. Well, so. when you get a chance, shoot me a list and we'll, and we'll figure out a time to reconvene. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Garden of Doom. Certainly check out Metatrack and subscribe and check it out. And if, and if you're able, support them at one of those Patreon levels. $3 a month is, it certainly isn't bad. Um, as for me, I just ask you to subscribe and, and give a five-star rating and maybe write a nice review. And, you know, ref- share the show with your friends. Refer it because the show is so, sort of genre-defined. There's there's a thousand shows out there that, that touch on things that I touch on, but I don't think there's any one show where you can just sort of get it all if you wait long enough or if you go back far enough in the catalog. So anyway, an, enough plugging of me about me. I'm still uncomfortable doing that. But thanks all for listening. And because Lost Sakari is not around, there's no outro. So just play whichever Star Trek theme you like the most in your head right now. Thank you and live long and prosper. Yes, live long and prosper. <laughs>